0: This is Dr. Karen, and you're listening to the Are They 18 Yet? podcast, where I help pediatric therapists become better leaders so they can make a bigger impact with their services. On this show, I'll share up-to-date evidence-based practices, my own experiences, and guest interviews designed to help clinicians and educators feel more confident in the way that they serve their caseloads so they can help school-age kids grow up to be successful, kind, well-adjusted people. Hey there, it's Dr. Karen and welcome to episode 71 of the Are They 18 Yet? podcast. In this episode, I am sharing a q and I did with my Language Therapy Advanced Foundations members where I dive into four different diagnoses and how we can navigate intervention for all of them and how we can understand the legitimacy of different diagnoses out there. So specifically, I talk about developmental language disorder and central auditory processing disorder. And I really get into the debate between these two diagnoses because central auditory processing disorder is a controversial diagnosis. There are many people who feel that there's not a lot of evidence that this is a legitimate standalone diagnosis. So I talk in this Q&A about how clinicians can navigate that whole debate and how they can make sure that they are using practices for their clients that are meeting their needs and that are based in evidence, but also still keeping an open mind for new information coming out in the field. And then I also talk about dyslexia versus hyperlexia and really the same debate of you know whether or not hyperlexia requires a specific intervention plan and what we know about it, and then also what we know about supporting these students. Because ultimately, it really comes down to figuring out what the student's needs are. Of course, the diagnosis is relevant to that, but it doesn't necessarily give us all the answers that we need. So I wanted to talk about that in this particular Q&A, because these questions do come up a lot. And really, it is about problem solving and taking the frameworks and the research that we have, but also having a good problem solving process for how we apply that to our practice. One thing I wanted to point out, I realized that I did make an error in my original Q&A I mentioned an article on the developmental language disorder terminology. The author of the article is Dr. Dorothy Bishop. Originally, I said she was an SLP, but I was incorrect. She is actually a psychologist. So please note that correction as you're listening. So I wanted to just warn you that my microphone was really jiggly during this q and I don't know what was going on. Um, I, I'm t- I tried to fix it before I recorded this intro. So hopefully you don't hear any funny noises, but you do hear some kind of, uh I don't know, me jiggling things around on the table, so I apologize for that. I'm hoping to have that fixed for uh, future episodes. Obviously, when I am recording my podcasts with just within the podcast platform that I'm recording in now, I have a little bit more of a pulse on what's going on with the audio, but when I do these Q&As, I often am just kind of going with it, and I don't ever really know if there was a problem with my audio um, unless somebody tells me they can't hear me or after the fact. So again, like I said, um, I don't think it will take away from the information that I share, but just wanted to let you know about that because this was a Q&A that I have taken from the members area, partially because I think it's an important topic and then also just you know, for those of you who might be interested in joining us in Language Therapy Advanced Foundations. So if that is you, if you are looking for an evidence-based plan for students who really fit that developmental language disorder profile, who struggle to learn the language that they need for skills like reading and writing and oral language, then definitely check out Language Therapy Advanced Foundations if you've been wanting more of a system and a framework to help you make decisions so that you know that you are focusing on high-priority skills in therapy. Definitely go to our enrollment page and check out what's included. To get more information, just go to drkarenspeech.com backslash language therapy. Again, that's drkarenspeech.com backslash language therapy. So now let's get into the Q&A on DLD, CAPD hyperlexia and dyslexia. Um, welcome to the 2nd July Q&A for the Language Therapy Insiders Club. Um, So uh, again, a lot of you in here are going through language therapy advanced foundations curriculum. So the purpose of these Q&As is to just dive deeper into some questions that come up um, from members as they're going through the program. Now, obviously, this is usually in reference to the five component framework that I teach for building, uh, for, for doing word study and for building the metacognitive awareness that facilitates independent word learning, independent language learning, and helps kids to essentially um, build better language skills for things like reading, writing, academic tasks, and also life beyond school. So um, what I wanted to talk about today is a couple, there are there's a lot of information going around about different diagnoses. um there there always has been. And there's when we're talking about these specific skills, kids who struggled to learn to read and write and struggle in school because of language issues, there are a lot of different diagnoses that could be um, that they could have. Um, and I do think a diagnosis is important. It does give you, essentially somewhat of a roadmap, or at least points you in the right direction about how you can intervene. But what's more important, and what, what really is the purpose of getting a diagnosis or putting a label on someone, is to get more information about how you can support that person. Really, ultimately, we want to understand their strengths and their needs for support, so they can we can figure out how to give it to them. So, Again, I know there's a lot of strong feelings about labeling and things like that. I think some of those are legitimate. But ultimately, just what what we want to know is what are the students' needs and how do we give it to them? That's always going to be the ultimate question. And yes, you know, having a label or a diagnosis is part of answering that question. Not all of it, but part. Because as you know, when you have one child with one diagnosis and you have another child with that same diagnosis, they could what they need could look very different. So with that all being said, I wanted to talk about, um, I'm going to go into four different ones today and how you can think about um, problem solving for all of them, because there are certain diagnoses that are obviously um, accepted and legitimate, and then there are some that are a little bit, you know, they're thrown around, but there's the evidence that they exist is not quite as strong as some of the other ones. And so it doesn't mean that it's, you know, for sure not a thing, but it also means that we should view it with an eye of skepticism, especially if we are going to put a label on a child. And I think that um, some of them, again, you you always want to go back to, if you're not certain if a certain label is even legitimate, then always the question you're going to go back to is what what is this learner, uh, what is their profile and what do they need? So I wanted to start out by talking about, um, let's start off with developmental language delay. So obviously, this is one that if you look back in the literature, then you're going to see um, SLI instead of DLD. So again, they're, they can be used interchangeably. I know that there is some debate about whether or not that should have been changed, uh, I would definitely say I'm I'm team DLD there um, that, you know, I am definitely um, supportive of the new te- uh, terminology and, and that it has become, become widely accepted now. Um, I wanted to talk a little bit about things like developmental language disorder and central auditory processing disorder and what that means for intervention because that question has come up a little bit in the group. And... There are there is a debate on the legitimacy of the central auditory processing disorder diagnosis, and I'm going to share in the comments. I can actually do it right now. Um, there's a an article. If you want, if you want to go down and do your own research, I would look up Dorothy Bishop, and she is. Again, team DLD. She's an SLP and she's done some really interesting research. And some of the findings uh, from some of her presentations that she's given, it's it, it's kind of like when you're thinking about this, this terminology thing. Um, it's very it gets very blind men in the elephant. Um, if you haven't heard of that story or that fable, definitely look it up. But basically it's people from different backgrounds looking at the same thing. And coming to different conclusions, seeing different things. So it's, you know, there's one man over here, and he's, you know, they're they're all blind, they can't see the elephant. He's feeling the trunk, and he's saying, Oh, this thing is a snake. Um, and then this there's another person over by the other side of the elephant feeling the leg, saying, Oh no, this is a tree trunk. And so they're seeing different things and they're looking at it different ways. Um, but but what Dorothy Bishop and colleagues found. Was that sometimes the diagnosis can be impacted by the person's background, and so, for example, if a speech pathologist were to look at a child, they their diagnosis might be this child has a language impairment, or they have they have a developmental language delay, um, and um, or and then you might have somebody else who has, uh, maybe they're an audiologist and they look at um, the same child and they give them a central auditory processing disorder diagnosis. And then you, maybe you have a psychologist and they say, this child has ADHD. Um, so you can kind of see where we're going here is that a lot of times these these characteristics look very similar. And so it is really important that we have an understanding of you know, what we're looking at. Now, um, the argument for a DLD, um, developmental language disorder, is that a lot of, and, and I'm not, um, I'm going to take ADHD out of the equation just for uh, argument's sake and this, you know, particular thing that I'm about to say, because obviously that is a legitimate diagnosis. Yes, there's a lot of um, issues with, with diagnosing that accurately, but I'm going to just talk about Central Auditory Processing Disorder and DLD for a minute. Um, So with Central Auditory Processing Disorder and Developmental Language Disorder, um, what the case for DLD is that a lot of times those things that look like auditory processing issues end up just being issues with language. So kids look like they're not processing auditorily because they don't have a solid sense of sentence structure for example. so of course it's going to look like they're not following directions and not processing or you know maybe they don't have a very good vocabulary they're not catching on to some of the terms and so they're they're not processing that. Um, and so a lot of times the intervention, whether you have a central auditory processing disorder diagnosis or a DLD diagnosis, are gonna look very similar because even people who are, are pro CAPD, a lot of times the intervention looks very similar to what I am suggesting in here, which is that we build those language skills because what happens then is that the auditory processing and I use that in kind of air quotes. The auditory processing appears to improve because the student have has more of a solid uh, language foundation, and so it's not taking them as much effort to be able to process what they're you know what they're hearing, what they're reading, et cetera. And so, with that in mind, because there's a little bit of confusion there, there's there's not a consensus there about whether or not you know this diagnosis is accurate the way that i interpret that as far as the where an slp should intervene is that i always go back to what i know is going to be effective so we know that working on syntax in a way that makes kids more aware of sentence structures we know that that works we know that building vocabulary in a way that facilitates independent word learning so not just like teaching kids words and teaching them to memorize words, really get them, getting them to think and self-question so that when they come across unfamiliar words, they have a strategy and a thought process and they've got that internal dialogue going. We know that those things work and we know that those things are going to help kids to read situations better, better problem solve. So when we zoom in and focus on those skills, we know that's going to help. And even with things like working memory, which again, that comes up with the auditory processing debate because there is a lot of, um, in the research, um, you know, you'll know, you hear anybody in the literacy space or or at least a lot of people in the literacy space will say there's not a lot of research to show that you can actually improve working memory. Well, what that actually means is that when you do things that some people would think of when you're thinking of working memory, it's more drill-like activities. So like repeating words and sounds and and things like that in more of a rote drill format. And so yes, you can improve the child's ability to do that particular skill in that particular setting. But what we see is that there's narrow transfer, meaning that that doesn't transfer over to something useful. And so that's why when you're working on language, you want to make sure you do it in a format that is functional and useful and facilitates, um, shows kids how to start in using that internal dialogue that they need to have when they encounter new language, when they're thinking about, you know, when they're hearing sentences, when they're processing all of those things, because kids aren't doing that automatically. If, you know, again, if they have that DLD profile, they're they're probably not doing that automatically. They don't have that metalinguistic awareness that's going to help them to process. So, Really, the case there is that it's not super a super useful um, way to spend your time working on those rote drill type of things, and that's often a lot of times when people think someone has, you know, they say they have central auditory processing disorder. A lot of times they think, oh, well, we need to be doing those types of things, those rote drill things that are what some people would define as working memory. Well. that's not necessarily the best way to use your your therapy time. Now, um, I think some other, I've heard some other people make the argument with working memory that you can work on it. Um, and when I heard that, I uh, was a little bit skeptical. But then when I actually listened to what they were saying, it was actually pretty much in line with what I teach in here, where it's, you know, we're, we're like studying words and language and having rich discussions um, that, that are helping kids to really think about words and language and really study words and their meaning so that you can apply that to other situations. Well, if that's what you're talking about, I don't know that I would necessarily define that as working memory because I think that that is a discrete skill that's integrated with other things. But what I do think is the case is that tasks that require working memory, the, the kid's ability to do those tasks are going to improve. They're going to be able to better process incoming information if they have stronger language skills because of the cognitive load. If you have a better sense of vocabulary, if you have a better developed vocabulary because you have good strategies for learning language when you encounter new information, then you're going to you're going to have a stronger developed, you know, repertoire of words in your brain, you're also going to be able to use different sentence structures and process different sentence structures so it's going to be easier for you to process incoming information so yeah it will appear like you have a better working memory um, so um is that improving working memory you know again that's kind of a semantic argument there it, it really what it comes down to is that the child is going to function better So that's why when I designed this program, I really focused on the language component rather than the auditory processing component. And I'm not saying that I think that, you know, that there's no possibility that that diagnosis exists. I will say that when I approach intervention, I go towards the, the DLD side, but really honestly, it's probably a lot of it is pretty similar to what people would be doing, even if they did believe a child had a legitimate auditory processing disorder diagnosis. So, again, when this is why I say ultimately what it comes down to, especially if you're, you know, working with somebody who thinks things differently on this issue than you, it really what it comes down to is just understanding what the child needs and giving them what they need. Um, I mean, if we can at least agree that doing some of those rote drill types of things isn't functional, and uh, we can we want to work on the language. And one person says it's central auditory processing. One person says it's DLD. You know, ultimately, I just want the kids to get what they need. So, um, and yes, again, I I do know that some people would say that, and it it is probably important for you to have an accurate diagnosis. So, um, now. Um, with that in mind, um, I, I wanted to share something that I thought was really interesting. I actually, so I've been in some groups and, you know, a lot of people, especially if they're uh, speech pathologists, if they are more on the DLD side, I know a lot of them are kind of like, well, there's, you know, there's no research to support those, those, um, you know, working memory drill type of exercises. I, I actually was at a state conference, a while back, and I did go to a a session on central auditory processing disorder. And I would say that the person presenting, they were an audiologist, and they were definitely team CAPD. And I did, I would say that based on the current available information, I have a different interpretation of what I think is the truth based on uh, what she presented and what I Uh, the way that I interpret things, but I really did appreciate the way that she presented the information because what she said was, um, you know, and I think that she'd probably agree that working on language and all of those things that I've mentioned are useful. But then what she also said was that, you know, she added some of these other things where I'm a little more skeptical about um, kind of the drilling type exercises to work on auditory processing And she was more in the camp that, you know, she's saying, you know, I do this in my clinic and I've seen it work and theoretically, and what she said is theoretically, this makes sense to me that if you work on this, it should improve this thing over here. But she's like, we don't have the research to support it yet. I am, you know, so on board to help and collaborate with anybody who wants to work on this thing because I see results, you know, just, you know, individual case studies and, you know, People telling me that it works and, you know, in theory, this is the way that I inference this information from this information. I think that this makes sense. But no, we don't have a lot of, you know, peer reviewed studies to support this yet. Um, So I appreciated that. I appreciated her honesty and transparency there with just saying, like, this is the information available. This is how I interpret it. But you know we 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 do have this over here. We don't have this over here, and I really appreciated that. It may be a lot more open to continuing this discussion, and that is how I generally like to approach things. Is just um, when things don't have a lot of research to support them, it doesn't necessarily mean that they're you know total you know it doesn't mean that it's pseudoscience, but it does mean we need to keep we have a have a skeptical lens going forward and make sure that we're you know, continuing to make good decisions. Especially if it's if it's you know things where you know uh, clients are paying for evaluations and spending their time and money and things like that. Obviously, we want to we want to give people accurate information so they can understand that when they do make decisions about how they spend their time and money and things like that. But I really appreciated that because I've seen a lot of people get very defensive and they don't answer questions. So somebody comes in. They're skeptical and they say, what about this? You don't have research to support this. And, you know, how do you explain this? And people just get very defensive and they don't answer the questions. Um, I am by nature a skeptical person. I like to ask questions. And part of that is just that I'm an intellectual and I'm inquisitive and I'm curious. And a lot of times when, um, you know, I see these discussions happening in groups where it's, um, you know, what's the research to support that? It sounds like an attack and it's really not meant that way. I certainly when I say like, hey, I'm curious about the research to support, whatever, um, it does it's not meant as an attack. It, it, it's meant as like, I'm genuinely interested in what you're talking about and I want to learn more. Um, and so I think that um, I, I always appreciate when somebody says something like that where they're like, I know, I hear you. there isn't there isn't an, a lot of information on this. This is why I'm doing what I'm doing, despite that, or um, or this is the information that I do have, even though I don't have this other type of information. So I I certainly appreciated that. I certainly appreciated her stance there because it did help to. I think that that helps to facilitate these ongoing discussions because there, you know, with a lot of these things, there might be, you know, we might in the future find out that there is some legitimacy. So I would I would recommend that you as clinicians stick to the things that you know work. Like we know that working on these language skills work. We know that these other things over here, you know, the rote drill types of things don't typically result in um, good transfer. Is it because we're sometimes doing them with kids who have DLD and, and not CAPD? Is it is it more of a, a matching type of thing where we're not matching the right intervention for the right kids? I'm not sure, but I know That regardless, if they're having those language issues, that working on these types of things that that we address in here are going to help. So that's why I focus my curriculum and this program on those types of things, because I want, you know, you have 30, 40 minutes a week. If you're lucky with your kids, you need to make every second count. And I'm always going to prioritize the things that are um, high priority and and known to be effective Mm -hmm. Um, rather than things where it's like it might be, we're not sure. So that's that's my philosophy, and that's why I present things the way that I do. Um, so <laughs> let's let's move on to uh, let's talk about hyperlexia and dyslexia now, um, and I'll talk about those two things together because I think that they do they're not the same, but they go together in the whole uh, discussion of of reading. So obviously. You know, dyslexia is is a language-based issue. And kids with dyslexia, when it comes to reading, they do need things to be more explicit. So a lot of times people will think, um, you know, if we look at something like sight word uh, instruction that's done in a lot of the early grades, kindergarten, first grade, a lot of times it's presented in like a kind of a drill, these flashcards format. And some kids do fine with that. And the reason that some kids do fine with that is because the internal dialogue and processes that need to happen are happening already, even though we don't see it, because it happens in a split second. Um, And adults do this without realizing it a lot. There's a lot of skills that adults do, just they have developed that automaticity with their thought processes, and they don't realize that kids aren't doing that And because those thought processes are so automatic for them, they don't even realize, like they don't even have an awareness. And so a lot of kids learn those things implicitly um, or they don't need as much explicit instruction in order to be able to to learn them. So when it comes to, to reading, it's, you know, being able to look at a word and automatically look at the letters, think about the sounds that go with those letters, and then sequence them together. So there's a lot of thought processes that need to happen there, and if kids aren't making that connection, then it is going to be hard and to, for them to you know, have sight word recognition, which really when we're talking about sight word recognition, we're talking about developing what's known as an MOI or a mental orthographic image. It's not rote drill, it's just that those skills are automatic. We've already developed that picture in our heads of what that word looks like we look at the word, we automatically assign it meaning, um, we might have some kind of vivid understanding of it. So if it's something that is concrete, like a, you know, like the word cat, like we see the word, the the symbols for cat on the page, and we automatically assign meaning to that, we can visually think in our heads of what a cat looks like, you know, we can f- like feel it and sense it. Like we know that it's fuzzy and it meows and we can we can like hear the meowing, you know, we it's very multi-sensory and all of that, those associations happen in a split second when we see that word on a page. And we also associate phonologically what's going on. So we know it's k- at we we can associate those sounds with the print symbols on the page. We do that very quickly. So kids who catch on to reading very quickly are making those associations. So you, you could make the argument that kids who do present with those characteristics of hyperlexia are able to do that really fast, whereas someone with dyslexia might need those things broken down more specifically and explicitly. Um, We might need to slow the process down for them in order for them to develop that automaticity. Now, that example that I gave you with the word cat, obviously that is a a word with one morpheme. Um, It's a very simple word. It's concrete. Now, you you have the same process with other more abstract words like articles, Um, for example, the word the. um, And with that word, Again, there's not a one-to-one correspondence with phonemes and letters, but there is still a phonological representation. We still have to think about the print symbols and associate them with some kind of sound, even if there's not a one-to-one correspondence. It's not memorization. It's not some crazy pattern. There's still a pattern. It's just a different pattern. And with the whole visualization thing, yes, it's abstract, but even with abstract words, we have some sense of how they're used. We can think about the context in which they could be used. And so that's kind of how we have that visualization and that sensing of what that word means and and things like that. And those are the things that have to happen for us to be able to fast map and learn words and things like that. So um, again, with that in mind, we're thinking about two different things here. Like, Do you have kids who aren't making those connections and they don't have that automaticity? If that's the case, then that is exactly the profile of a kid who would benefit from this framework that I teach in this program, where we are breaking those thought processes down that they're not doing. Now, obviously, if you have a kid who has dyslexia and they are having issues with decoding, the comprehension is going to be impacted by their difficulty with decoding. If they also have issues with sentence structure, then their comprehension is going to be impacted by their um, their the level to which they are able to, process different sentence types, especially complex sentences. So if you have a child that is not catching on to those patterns, then comprehension, high level comprehension, ability to get the gist and the main idea that gestalt processing is going to be impacted by their their difficulty with those things at the word and sentence level so we do need to intervene there now the way that we want to intervene though is that we do want to build that metacognition and those internal thought processes we want to give kids strategies because then it's more likely that they're going to be be thinking in that way and thinking about language differently when we do teach them those more high level just all type of things Um, So, for example, if like if you have a child who does not have a good sense of morphology and they're not looking at those different word parts, that's going to impact their ability to um, to decode and spell those multimorphemic words. They may not even, you know, again, that could also impact their vocabulary growth there. So a child with dyslexia, that would be something that you would want to dive in and focus on, which is something that I show you how to do in Language Therapy Advanced Foundations. Um, Same thing, you know, the example I gave with phonology and the phonemes, it's the same, a similar concept with morphology where kids need to look at those word parts and initially, um, and immediately associate that meaning and see those patterns in that word, see those different parts of a word, like, is there a prefix on it? That prefix is giving meaning. That prefix also, there's a way that you pronounce it. Um, so you can have those uh, that visual representation of things for entire words and then word parts as well because those word parts give the whole word meaning. So it is going to be really important if you have a child who is not able to decode and spell with automaticity uh, with with. uh mono uh, morphemic words or with multi-morphemic words. you are going to need to focus on those things because that is going to impact their overall processing. And the other thing is that I, I think people make the argument that when you're reading, yeah, you do have to get the b- big picture. It is really important to do that if you're just focusing on, you know I, you know sometimes people criticize the c- reading curriculums because they don't really, always focus on the big picture. They're just kind of very zoomed in on these isolated skills. Well, it's not, the, the problem is not that we're focusing on these isolated skills. It's the way that we're focusing on them. Are we just drilling them or are we teaching kids to really look and think about what they're doing? Because if that's the case, let's say, you know, you get to the point where you've built the the some skills and the, the child is working on comprehending an entire paragraph. and maybe they have they're reading that whole paragraph, and there's one sentence where they're not really sure what it means. They can actually use strategies and they actually have that awareness to to look in that entire paragraph and think, oh, this one sentence, you know, let me let me think about what this means here. or oh, this one word, I, I wasn't really sure what this word was. Um, you know, let me let me think about the sounds and the letters that would go with this word. So you what we're doing, when we're working on these language skills, we're just zooming in and we're doing the same thing that we would do with staining the main idea where we're problem solving and inferencing. We're just doing it in a very zoomed in way focused on specific words and sentences. So when we teach kids to think like that, it's gonna be easier for them to have a strategy when we are focusing on the big picture because sometimes when you're doing that, you do need to zoom in and focus on these specific skills. And if we totally bypass that process And we go right to the high level comprehension and kids need that instruction and they need those strategies at the word and sentence level, then we're not going to be able, like they're not going to have a strategy to use. They're not going to have something to pull through. They're not going to be able to kind of um, read, read the room, but in a way when they're reading, like they're not going to be able to have that strategy and have that automaticity and Obviously, there is still some value to teaching those those specific skills, those specific phonic skills. Obviously, there's a lot of value there as well. So we want to think about that. It's more about it's not just the skills that we're teaching, it's how we're teaching the skills. It's how we're how we're teaching kids to think about language differently and how we're thinking how we're teaching them to question and think about things as they encounter things that they don't know ultimately that's what's going to help them to really build their language skills because we can't teach them everything that they need to know. We can't teach them all the words and sentence structures that they need to know in a 30 minute a week session. But what we can do is help them to think a little bit differently so that they can start to learn things on their own. And that's ultimately what uh, this framework is designed to help you do. Now with hyperlexia, I wanted to wrap up by talking about a couple of things there. I have seen some, uh, interesting information shared on social media. So I wanted to share my uh, my understanding based on the evidence of what is true about that. So this is a case where I think it's really important to think about the skills that kids need in order to have solid processing, especially when you're reading. Obviously, well, you know, we're talking specifically about reading here. So if a child is not you know if they're if they don't have that automaticity at the word and sentence level yes that's going to impact their processing now one could make the argument that a child with hyperlexia does have that automaticity if they are able to decode words so you would look at that child and think okay all of these things are necessary in order for them to process this paragraph and have good comprehension let's go through the list and look at what skills this child has well Maybe they already are pretty good at decoding multimorphemic words. Um, and so you'd want to zoom in there and think okay, do they actually know what these words mean? Are they just saying the words? Maybe they have the phonological piece, they can pronounce them, but they don't actually know what that word means. If that's the case, then it would be beneficial for them to do some work on morphology but really what you're doing there is tying semantics and morphology together which again with all of these components that we teach in this program they're all integrated and interrelated you're never just really working on one you know when we're working on morphology there is that semantic component because we're talking about meaning so keep that in mind but um the other thing to think about there is that um you know, with, with hyperlexia, there might be an element of syntax that you might need to work on. So maybe they, um, you know, maybe you dive into it, they, you're working on morphology with them, and you realize, you know what, they do get the semantics of this. Um, they're, you know, we, maybe they're, the, the decoding is pretty solid, but then you look at syntax, and you think, okay, but they don't actually understand the message behind this these individual sentences when there's more complex sentence structures, then it would be beneficial to focus on syntax with that student. So again, we are zooming in there. Um, and, and then we're kind of zooming out and thinking, okay, we're looking at words. Now we're looking at sentences. Do they comprehend those sentences? Let's say that you have a student with hyperlexia and they do understand those whole sentences. Well then, yes, it does make sense for you to focus on more of that gestalt, big picture comprehension type of things. And I would say that most kids, if you even with the uh, the DLD uh, diagnosis, that you are probably going to have to go through the same th- same thought process. Um, I do harp a lot of times, like stop working on these high level gestalt things and work on these more zoomed in language focused things. You know, I say stop. Stop working on reading comprehension and focus on the things that are causing the breakdowns in reading comprehension. You know, maybe you need to work at the word and sentence level. When I say that, I don't necessarily mean that those high-level comprehension strategies aren't important. I'm just saying that we want to zoom in and focus on the skills that are causing the breakdown because sometimes when you skip to those high-level things, you aren't necessarily able to, um, like, kids don't have that foundation that they need in order to benefit from that level of instruction. So it's not that it's not important, it's just that there are some skills causing some issues with cognitive load that are causing that breakdown. Okay, so um, I would caution you against, uh, with hyperlexia, a lot of times people, I've heard some people say, like, well, if, you know, you're working on standard instruction or like standard reading instruction in your your child with hyperlexia is not making progress then maybe you need to do this thing over here um so I, again like I think that it's important that you go through this process and this whole thought process with them and not place them in some kind of a box. There's not really a ton of research that shows that there's a specific approach that needs to be done for students with hyperlexia. So if you hear someone saying, this is the way, like they need, people with hyperlexia need this or that, like there there's not really a lot of research to support that they need that. But what we wanna think about is what skills do kids need in order to be able to read and comprehend And what skills does this student have and what ones do they need to work on? And how do we go about working on those skills that are, you know, causing them to to not be able to to read and comprehend? So if they are showing some of those characteristics of hyperlexia, that might give you some information about what skills they do and don't have, but you're still going to want to go through this process Now, is it more likely that you're going to be focused on more of the high-level comprehension things? Maybe. Or is it more likely that they might be able to decode words, but then maybe they need some work on the semantic meanings? Possibly. But there's not really a definitive, this is the one approach for hyperlexia. So be very skeptical if you hear someone saying that there is. Um, And if you are a person who does know of some research that does support Hyperlexia, uh, a specific intervention for hyperlexia, um, like an em- empirical study or something like that, then you know definitely send the link my way. I'd be really interested in reading that. Um, I'm always interested in learning new information about this topic, so I am always open to change the way I explain things as new information comes in. Uh, the other thing with with hyperlexia, a lot of the things that we would just do for Other kids that don't have that profile would be something that would be beneficial. So again, working on those things that support comprehension as I've been talking about today. So um, that's how I would recommend going through all of those, uh, navigating all of those diagnoses and using this framework and just in your practice in general. So... Um, As always, if there are questions about this specific video and you are in the Language Therapy Insiders group, uh, go ahead and leave your comments below. Uh, If you have another question about course content that doesn't necessarily go with this topic, you're always welcome to start a separate thread in the group. So thank you, everyone, for, uh, for listening and let me know if you have any other questions. And I will see you next week. Before I wrap up, I wanted to thank you again for listening and remind you that if you found this information valuable, then definitely share it with your colleagues. And if you're a parent and you're listening to this and you're wondering what is going on in your child's speech therapy sessions or at school, then definitely feel free to share any of this information with them as you're starting those conversations. I know that it can be really confusing to navigate all the services that your child is getting. So I'm also here to provide clarity for you as well. Or if you are a speech pathologist, social worker, special education teacher, um, school psychologist, or anybody who is supporting kids and you found this useful, um, definitely share it with anyone you work with if it will help provide additional clarity. Also, I did mention a couple links to things that I shared via the comments when I did this original Facebook Live, I will share any of the links that I mentioned in the show notes. So definitely check those out for the information on hyperlexia and also the information on the DLD terminology from Dorothy Bishop. So I'll link to both of those in the show notes. If you are a professional who is working on language, especially if you're an SLP and you want clarity in your language therapy sessions, you wanna know what exactly you should be doing to support students' language and literacy skills so that they can build strong reading and writing skills, and you want a framework for doing that so you're not starting from scratch, definitely check out our Language Therapy Advanced Foundations enrollment page where I will outline all of the details of what's covered in that program. Again, this is a Q&A taken directly from that group. In the actual program, I go into some specific therapy techniques. These Q&As obviously are more high-level topics that come up, but hopefully this gave you a taste of some of the discussions that we have in there. So to learn more, go to drkarenspeech.com backslash language therapy. Again, that's dr backslash language therapy. As always, thank you so much for listening, and I'll see you in the next episode.